Hi there, I'm Amanda Stevens, and welcome to the Epic Podcast, where I explore the minds of some of the planet's most epic entrepreneurs, business leaders, and visionaries to unearth their incredible stories, their journey to success, how they do what they do, and most importantly, why. My hope is that you'll find some inspiration in each episode, some new ideas, or perhaps just a little motivation to build an epic business and life. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Epic Podcast. It's great to have you here. And today I bring you a story that is an epic tale of the human spirit and its ability to cope with the unimaginable. Very few people will ever have to face the gut-wrenching devastation and heartbreak of losing not one, but three children, all in the space of 82 days. Sophie Smith did, and it almost broke her. 13 years ago, Sophie and her husband, Ash, had triplet boys, Henry, Evan and Jasper, who were born prematurely and despite huge efforts by their medical teams, couldn't be saved. As if that wasn't cruel enough, Sophie then lost her husband, Ash, to a brain tumour less than a decade later. And while this is a story of heartbreak, it's also one of hope. This is a long interview, but please stick with it. It's raw, it's personal and it's quite harrowing but it's also an inspiring and uplifting story of what's possible when you reach the depths of immense and unimaginable grief and turn it into an epic cause, a cause that is now saving thousands of lives and positively impacting tens of thousands more. This interview will leave you in awe of the strength and grit of the human spirit. It's a standalone episode today to finish off season one of the Epic Podcast. So grab a coffee or a wine settle in and get ready for that epic music in three, two, one. My guest today embodies positivity despite having one of the most heartbreaking tales you can imagine. In 2006, Sophie Smith and her husband, Ash, learned that they were pregnant with their first child. They then learned that they were, in fact, pregnant with triplets. They were overjoyed. But sadly, their triplets arrived very early, and despite huge efforts to save them, they couldn't overcome their prematurity. Henry lived for just one hour, Evan lived for 10 days, and Jasper lived for 58 days. Going home from hospital empty-armed after such a roller coaster of hope and heartbreak would bring most people to their knees. But Sophie and Ash decided to channel their grief into a positive cause to raise money for the very neonatal unit where they said goodbye to their boys. Running for Premature Babies was born and to date has raised over $3.5 million for life-saving equipment to give Premature Babies a better chance of survival. Sophie, welcome to the Epic Podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, take us back to the day that you and Ash found out you were pregnant with triplets. What was your reaction? You know what? I could not believe what a miracle it was. I, I, I thought we were the luckiest people in the world. I honestly, there wasn't a moment when I, I didn't, there wasn't a moment when I thought this was anything but just incredible. And um, I actually, we were at the scan, it was at eight weeks, it was an early scan, we were actually asked to come in for an early scan because my um, pregnancy hormones had been so high, they just wanted us to come in to make sure everything was okay. 
So Ash and I had kind of spoken about the possibility that we might have twins and we were, so we were already kind of, you know, we, we already had that idea in our head and we were already super excited about that. And then when the sonographer put the, um, the scan, you know, the stuff on my belly and, and, and put the machine onto my belly and I looked at the screen and at first I couldn't really see what was, what was there. And then suddenly Ash saw them first and these three little hearts flashing on the screen. And, um, yeah, I just, I, cause it had never even crossed my mind that there could be three babies. Mm. Um, so we were just excited, so excited. But then the sonographer actually measured the fetuses and, um, we had to go in and see a doctor because they said that two of them were measuring, at, at, you know, as as should be for an eight-week fetus, but one was too small. And so they basically told us to come back in four weeks' time, but the chances are that in four weeks there would be two there, not three, um, which I was, you know, at, at the time I was just like, oh, you know, I didn't really feel any connection to the third or whatever. But Ash was, was sweet. I remember as we left the room, Ash turned around to me and said, I really hope that little one pulls through. And um, and then we went, when we went back four weeks later, um, the three of them were all there exactly the same time. And, uh, yeah, and that's when we really believed that we'd be having three babies. Amazing. Did you ever have any inkling that things wouldn't turn out so well? Was there anything during the pregnancy? Never. So it, it was, I mean, maybe I was naive because, we had been warned that, um, you know, there was a high chance of an early premature birth. And we had also had to have discussions um, with the doctors regarding um, whether we wanted to proceed with the pregnancy with three babies. Uh, but to me, I was, from that first moment of, you know, the second scan of seeing the three there, at, you know, I guess they were 12 weeks by then. Um, from that minute, I just knew that, these three babies were mine and um, and I never considered I knew that they would most probably be born early and that they'd need to stay in hospital but I just thought that meant fattening up until they came home and even though I remember Ash subscribed me as a, as a surprise he um, subscribed to a magazine an American magazine called the triplet connection and I remember when the first edition of the triplet connection arrived in my letterbox and I was so excited whooping over open this magazine and reading these stories it was all about families in the u.s and it was you know families of people with triplets and more and in that magazine there was one page that was uh in memoriam page and there were some stories of people who had lost one or two or in and there was one story of a woman who lost all three babies and even when i read that story and it was a story of a woman who lost one baby then another baby then a third baby and i sat and wept for this woman and just thought how could she have survived and what a terrible tragedy but it but i never for one moment thought that that was in me we bought a little triplet buggy this cute little triplet buggy and we assembled it you know we were just so excited we bought um, a new car because we had a, an old honda civic that wouldn't have fit three baby seats we went out and bought a new car specially so it would fit three baby seats um we had a cot we borrowed a cot from a friend and we had already planned how we were going to have to sort of change our house because we only had a very small house and, um, you know, how we would fit our three little babies in. So, no, I never even, never crossed my mind that we wouldn't be bringing all three of them home. 
Mm. So you did at one stage, you say, you write about it in your book that the doctors did have the discussion with you about selective reduction, which I can imagine for anyone in that situation is an incredibly confronting conversation. Well, do you know, it was, and again, I don't, um, wouldn't judge anyone for making any, you know, everybody's story is their own. And I would never judge anybody for making a decision to reduce. But for me, I found the idea personally for for me totally abhorrent and that I absolutely was not going to, I didn't even want to go and talk to the doctors about this. And I even thought that, you know, the term selective reduction, Mm. I was like, what are you trying to say? You basically stop, you know, sugarcoating it. You're basically asking me to abort one or two of my babies. And I don't want to do that. But Ash was, you know, told me, look, we have to go and speak to the doctors because we, we can't be irresponsible. We have to do, you know, the right thing. So I went along to listen to the doctors, what they had to say. And actually, the doctor that I spoke to um, didn't give me one good reason to uh, abort one or two of the babies because the, the reasons he was giving me was that it was just going to be too, life was just going to be too hard with three babies. And he told me that statistically, uh, my husband and I will be divorced by the time the babies turned oh, one and all these things. And, and I kind of, so, so to me, and Ash agreed, you know, he didn't actually speak about premature birth or, or things like that. And, and so anyway, I did my own research and um, I actually then, I'd never met, I'd never even met triplets before. I'd never even met anyone who had triplets before. So I actually went off and did my own research and I, it, I found people, families in my area in Sydney with triplets and I arranged to go meet them. I went and met three families, all with um, triplets. And every family I went to, I came away so excited because their lives were chaotic and crazy but just so wonderful. And um, so I was 100% positive about that this was going to be an amazing experience. And I knew that obviously our lives would be thrown into chaos with three babies, but um, but I couldn't think of anything more more wonderful. You, you were ready for the magic chaos. We were ready for it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the babies then arrived early, um, very early. When mm. you went into premature labour, um, and you had the triplets, you had the boys, what chance of survival were they initially given? So I actually, uh, my waters broke at 21 weeks. I didn't even know that that's what had happened because, you know, it wasn't on my radar. Um, but uh, I went into hospital. They told me your waters have broken, which means you are most probably going to go into labour within, you're going to deliver your boys within 24 hours. And at this early gestation, there's nothing that can be done to save them. They will be born um, they'll probably won't be alive when they're born. And if they are, we cannot intervene to save their lives. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we were suddenly thrown onto this roller coaster where one, we went literally from despair and then back to hope and then back to despair again so many times because in that, you know, I had to get my head around the fact that my, I'd just lost my babies at 21 weeks. And then we were given some drugs to try and hold off the labor. And um, we made it five days Five days later, I went into labor and um, my baby Henry was born, our first boy. And um, he actually lived for one hour and it was, an, it was a very beautiful hour. But um, we were then told we actually had to stay in the delivery suite because they were waiting for the other two to arrive. Um, and when they didn't and the labor didn't progress, I was moved to the antenatal ward. But 
I don't think anybody believed that I would be able to remain pregnant for another three weeks till we had to get to 24 weeks before intervention could be given. And then as every day passed, our hopes grew and we inched closer and closer to this sort of magic date of 24 weeks. And once we made it to 24 weeks, a doctor came into my room in the hospital and spoke to us about what would happen if I was to go into labor, you know, from now in 24 weeks. And the first question he asked was, you know, would we like the doctors to resuscitate our babies at birth or would we like them to be left to die? And of course, you know, I just made it to 20, we just made it to the impossible to 24 weeks. And I told the doctor in no uncertain terms that he must do everything in his powers to try and save my baby's lives. But I understood that, you know, there is a, a chance, a possibility of, of disabilities or a range of disabilities from being born prematurely. But I did not care. I just wanted my babies alive. So, but actually at that point, at 24 weeks, I believed that I wasn't going to go into labor. I believed that these two remaining babies were going to be born full term. And that I would just, I'd settled into my room in the hospital and I knew I would have to remain on bed rest. And I was perfectly happy to be there and to be remaining on bed rest. And I just kept talking to Ash about the fact that these two babies were going to grow up always being referred to as, as triplets. They were not twins, they were triplets. And sometimes, you know, a nurse might come into the room and mention the twins. And I would always correct them and say, they're triplets. You know, Henry still exist, existed. So I want him to continue, you know, his uh, memory to live on through his brothers. Um, but actually, at 24 weeks and three days, um, my waters broke again. And then, yeah, I, we were told that they would have a 50% chance of survival. Now, to me, I suppose if anyone else is told their baby has a 50% chance of survival, you'd think that was terrible odds. But for me, we had gone from being told there was no chance of my baby surviving to being told there was a 50% chance they would survive. And I thought those were fantastic odds. I, I believe when my babies were born at 24 weeks and five days, I 100%, again, maybe I was naive, 100% believed that they would be coming home. And I imagine that in that time where you were on bed rest, you'd had Henry and I guess how did you balance the grief that you were obviously experiencing for Henry with positive outlook you needed to maintain for yeah. for the remainder. I knew, I knew that I, because there was a very high risk that I was going to uh, develop an infection um, because I had already delivered Henry and I hadn't delivered his placenta. So I actually, I actually had Henry's umbilical cord still, you know, hanging. I mean, mm. maybe it was too graphic, but, you know, it was there. So I... I was having to be monitored extremely closely and I was told if there was any sign of infection then my then I would be induced and my babies would have to you know would die and so I was so focused on trying to remain calm and remain positive and remain well because I had to for the survival of my of my remaining two babies mm. my grief for Henry was um you know, real and intense, but I I put it to the side in order to focus on Evan and Jasper at that at that time. Um, there were, you know, I 
yeah, I would just focus on Evan and Jasper because I knew that that's what I had to do. Mm. And so Evan and Jasper were born and then the real roller coaster began, didn't it? Yes. So they were born and they were immediately intubated. They were actually put in plastic bags. It's amazing. You know, when a baby's born so prematurely, they, they're put into a Ziploc bag to keep their, so they don't lose any body heat as they're transferred to the intensive care unit. Um, but they were, um, they actually coped with their birth really well. They were good birth weights. Jasper was 760 grams and Evan was 620 grams. And we were told they were really good weights, that they had survived, the, that they had coped with the birth and the intubation and the transfer to the neonatal intensive care unit extremely well. And we were told that if they could get through the first four days without any major complications, then their chances of survival would go up. And we knew that there were many things that could go wrong in the first four days with their brains, with their uh, heart, um, with their gut. And those first four days were, were amazing. They both did really well. We got through, we got through seven days and I wasn't allowed to touch them or hold them, but, um, I sat by their humidity cribs all the hours that I was allowed to be in the hospital. Any hours I could, I was by their bedside, just falling in love with them. You know, they were, they were so premature that they, their skin wasn't even formed properly. They, they had no body fat. They are, their eyes were sealed shut. Um, you know, they had, their lungs were so underdeveloped that they were attached to ventilators, keeping them alive. But to me, they were the most beautiful babies I'd ever seen. And I spent Ash as well. Ash didn't leave my side, hadn't left my side since before Henry was born. He slept on a chair next to my bed the entire time. And, um, and we spent those days just talking to them through their windows and telling them how much we loved them and and patiently waiting until we could, you know, until they grew strong enough for us to be allowed to hold them. But then when they were nine days old, things started to go wrong. Well, probably about eight days old, things started to go wrong for Evan. And um, he developed an infection. And then, yeah, he, things weren't good. On, on the ninth day, I was sent home for the first time. And I did not want to leave the hospital, but I was told I had, it was time for me to go home. Luckily, we lived very close to the hospital. I went home that night, and in the middle of the night, we received a phone call telling us to come back urgently. And that was the first of many middle of the night phone calls we had over the next 58 days. But we were called back into the hospital and Evan had suffered a brain hemorrhage. Mm. Um, and in the morning, we were called into the quiet room, which is a room to this day I can't even walk past, and were told that Evan had suffered a severe brain hemorrhage and um, coupled with his infection that his little body was having trouble fighting, the recommendation was that we remove his life support and let him die. And that was, I mean, to this day, the wor- I, I can honestly say the worst day of my life. It was... Um, it was awful because, you know, we had to give permission. So we, 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 we actually took him out of his crib. And the first time I held him was when um, his doctors turned off his machine and he died in my arms. Um, it, was, it was a terrible, it was a terrible, terrible moment. I can't imagine what was going through your mind on that day, obviously, 
intense grief for a second time, but then you've, you know, you've, you've got to focus on what's ahead, yeah. really. I, I mean, that must have been, I can't imagine how you reconciled all those emotions. I, I don't know either. All I know is that the day that Evan died, I don't think I even glanced over at Jasper. We actually had, well, I did glance over at Jasper because we had, um, we actually had Evan baptized before he died. And um, the priest suggested that he baptized both Jasper and Evan. And at the time I had said, no, 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 Jasper can have a proper baptism when he comes home. Um, but Ash said to me, let's have Jasper baptized as well, because then we can tell him that that's what he did with his brother mm. and that that was something they did together. And so when he grows up, so um, the priest did baptize Jasper as well, but they were in humility cribs next door to each other. And um, uh, I don't really remember much what happened when he baptized them because I don't think anyone could hear anything over my, um, you know, gut-wrenching wails, which really was. So the day that Evan died, I think my heart was 100%, you know, breaking for Evan. And I, you know, I can't even describe the pain of my heart breaking into a million pieces. But strangely, I came home that night, you know, absolutely broken. But the next day, I woke up, and all I could think was, I've got to be there for Jasper. I have to be back in that. I, I want to get straight back to that hospital and focus on Jasper. And that's what we did. Mm. We went back in, and and Jasper, Jasper was doing so well. And it was that very next day after Evan died that, um, you know, Jasper was doing so well that I was actually able to take him out of his humidity crib and hold him and and it was only for about five minutes but taking a babe holding my baby not because he was going to die but just because i was you know he was well enough to be held was just incredible and ash and i then just focused on jasper and again strangely maybe seeing as i'd already lost seven i 100 percent believe that jasper was our survivor and I felt so sad for Jasper that he was going to grow up without his brothers and again I you know Ash and I spoke together about the fact that Jasper would always know that he was one of three and that he his brothers would always be you know watching over him and that he would know his brothers and that we would um, you know make sure that he grew up knowing who his brothers were and how loved they were. And so at this point, Jasper's nearly two weeks old and I guess there was a feeling of intense hope um, or, and confidence that you would be taking him home at some point. Yes. He was He was doing so well. He was um, – all the things that could have gone wrong, like with his heart, he had a, an open heart duct that was concerning and, you know, he was there was a talk about him needing heart surgery and then – Amazingly, his heart ducts closed, you know, of its own accord, which meant that we had avoided any, you know, surgery on his heart. And his, uh, he was loving my milk, which was he was being given, you know, like <laughs> tiny amounts. It was like one mil, 
of milk every four hours or something. And he was tolerating that really well. And he was growing. He, you know, we, there was the day he, he hit one kilogram and um, we celebrated with uh, Ash bought a one kilogram of chocolate into the hospital to give to the nurses. And we, um, there was the day when he was um, 10 days old when he opened his eyes for the first time. And that was an incredible moment because we'd never, Evan had never opened his eyes. They were still sealed shut. And the day we went into the hospital and, and he was lying on his tummy. And um, by this stage, I was allowed to put my hands through the windows of the humidity crib and, and help uh, with his cares in the morning and in the evening, we were washing his face and, and changing his nappy. And he was lying on his tummy. And so I was helping the nurse to turn him over. And as we turned him over, there was this one great big beady eye looking back at us and one eye had opened and the other eye was still closed. And Ash and I could not believe how incredible it was to be able to look into his eye and see this beautiful big blue beady eye looking back at us and looking, you know, so intently into our eyes. So we did um, have some really happy memories of the next few weeks and, um, Certainly, as Jasper continued to do well, and then, you know, I remember the fa it was Father's Day, and uh, we were allowed to take Jasper out of his crib, and Ash had his first cuddle on Father's Day, which was really amazing. So we had a lot of hope, and that continued for a few weeks. We had initially that the, the the social worker at the hospital had spoken to me about what our plans were for a funeral for Henry and Evan. And I initially told her that I didn't want to make any funeral arrangements yet because if Jasper wasn't going to survive, I wanted them to be buried together. But then as the days passed, I, might, you know, I, I became so confident in the survival of Jasper and it came to the point when Ash and I decided that, of course, we must get ahead and plan a funeral for Henry and Evan because Jasper was, was, a, was going to survive. And sadly, you went home empty-handed, didn't you? We did. So we had a funeral for Evan and Henry. And Jasper had had two very good weeks. And then I remember it was two days after the funeral when we had another phone call in the middle of the night to say that things had gone wrong with Jasper. And then it was a real roller coaster through the next few weeks where... There were many times we were called in. It was his lungs began to get incredibly sick. He had chronic lung disease and his lungs kept collapsing. And every time his lungs collapsed, it was life-threatening. And we would be, if we weren't at the hospital, we would be called into the hospital. And then there were many times when we were told to say goodbye. And then each time, just to pull, amazingly, at the last minute, just pulled through. And each time this happened, I thought, you know, when he grows up, I'll tell him about the times when we, when we thought we, we lost him and he was so strong. He just was such a fighter. You know, he pulled through every time. But then when he was 58 days old, we, uh, again, we were early morning, we were called into the hospital and um, then nothing more could be done to save him. And um, they took, you know, they he was in his crib and his lungs had collapsed and, and they said that there was nothing more they could do. So... Once again, they took him out of his crib and we held him for about an hour and um, and he passed away after about an hour. And, you know, right up until 
the moment when the doctor said he's gone, I believe that this was going to be another one of those times when everyone had given up on him, but Jasper was going to be okay. So I really didn't lose hope until until he died. And and then, yeah, it was. I actually couldn't leave the hospital, so um, we ended up. We stayed all day with him, and then we went home. We tried to go home in the evening, but as soon as I got home, I just turned around to Ash, and I didn't even have to say, I want to go back to the hospital. I just looked at him, and he turned the car around. We drove straight back to the hospital, and we went straight in and said, we need our baby. And so we actually, uh, the hospital were amazing, and we we spent the night together with him um, in, a, in a special room, which... Um, which is really a room that is next to the newborn intensive care unit. And it's for parents to spend the last night with their baby before taking their baby home. It's sort of a room where if your baby's been in hospital for a long time, you have one night where you, you're sort of on your own. Mm, it's like a trial, tra- you're on your own, but if you yeah. need help, you can just call for the doctor or the yeah. nurse. Um, and um, rather beautifully, that very room has now been called the Henry, Jasper and Evan room. It's oh. been renovated and... Um, it has an, 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 a plaque on the door, and it's called the Henry Jasper and Evan Room, which is really beautiful. So we had our last night with Jasper there, and um, yeah, and then um, left the hospital with, with none of our boys. So it was, uh, I, I couldn't believe it really. You know, it had been um, 82 days since Henry's birth, and they weren't 82 terrible days, they were 82 incredible days when I had had the opportunity to to get to know my own babies and to actually be their mum and to you know um uh, there was even the time actually I, I didn't mention in Jasper's life when um I was able to actually take him out of his crib and hold him to my boob and even though he was intubated and he couldn't um you know he, he couldn't actually well he couldn't actually drink he um instinctively just latched onto my boob and took one suck and then fell asleep. And that was the most, I think that was the, the most amazing memory I have of Jasper when I, when he and I were just together as mother and son and, you know, just doing the normal, the normal thing that mums do. And, and to me, it was such a beautiful gift that he, he'd given me um, in that moment. Mm. So, Sophie, 82 days of hope and heartbreak. Um, at what point in the depths of grief that would just shatter most people did you wake up one day and say, we need to do something positive? Well, from the very moment Jasper died, Ash and I were determined that that wasn't the end. That could not be the end of them. And even though they had died, we were still their parents. And even though they had died, we wanted something good to come from them. But um, it, it was actually um, a few weeks later, and I was—I I found this, um, this poem on the internet, and um, it was—it was—I was—I was basically just searching on the internet. I was trying to find. I don't know what I was trying to find on the, on the 
I was trying to find something. I was trying to find, I don't know what I was trying to find. But I found this, this poem and the last four lines were, please, it was written from the perspective of a baby who died. And the, at the end it said, please don't be sad, mummy. Go on and live for me. It's so important that you do as it's through your eyes I'll see. And, and I, I then, I think I realized that like, I had to make a choice about how I was going to continue my life. Um, I felt like giving up on my life because my babies had died. But I knew that for them, I could not do that. But for my boys, I needed to to look forward and do something uh, in their honor. And it was about that time that Ash suggested that I, he was trying to help me sort of get through the days. You know, I was, on, I was, still, I was actually on maternity leave from work and um you know i was in this desperately quiet house an empty house with this triplet buggy staring at me and i just didn't know what to do with myself and so in an attempt to sort of help me ash suggested that we start training for a half marathon and, and to raise the money for the hospital and when our, our boys had been in hospital we'd realized that we well, we'd been told by the doctors that so much of the equipment that was keeping them alive had actually been donated and I was absolutely amazed to find out that the hospital relies on fundraising for 70% of their equipment in the unit. And I also knew that it was this, you know, it was only, well, it was the incredible doctors, but it was they, they needed state-of-the-art life-saving equipment in order to give these babies a chance of life. And um, my babies had had, had had good equipment, but there was better equipment available. There were new ventilators available that were incredibly expensive that hospitals can't afford, but actually give babies a better chance. And, you know, new humidity cribs. And so um, we found out that a new humidity crib would cost $20,000. So we decided, let's run a half marathon, raise $20,000, and buy the hospital a new humidity crib. And so once I had this focus, it actually helped me enormously because it gave me something to do. I, need, I knew I couldn't raise $20,000 on my own, so I knew I needed to and persuade people to run with me. So first of all, I started convincing all of my non-running friends that they should start training and run a half marathon. And then I decided that I needed more people. So I created a little flyer. I basically just told my story on an A4 piece of paper, folded it up and put it around cafes in my local community to see if there were people that wanted to run with me and help me in my baby's memory. And, and then from there, things just snowballed. It was amazing. And it was so, it really helped. Every single time a complete stranger rang me and said, I've just picked up your flyer. Please, can I join your team? It just helped me so much. It gave me, it helped to lift me up to know that, that people, people I didn't even know had been touched by my story and wanted to do something to help. You know, it was amazing that the local community, I received a phone call from somebody who was the general manager of the local pub and he had picked up a flyer and said, you know, what, what can I do? I'd love to support you. And so I, I said to him, well, actually, how about you can provide some running singlets, a team shirt for me. Um, and so he said, no problem. How many runners? And at that point I had to think about 25 runners. So I said, I don't know, but about 25. And he said, no problem. And then a few weeks later I had to ring him back and say, any chance we could have 98 shirts because I've had 98 people join my team. Um, so really it, it, um, it gave me an incredible way for me to be able to channel my grief. And also it allowed me to talk about 
my babies. I found it very difficult because um, until I had this, you know, the, 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 the reason for the team and the fundraising to talk about them, I found that people were incredibly uncomfortable to, to talk about my boys, not because people were unkind, but just because they did not know what to say. And it, it was amazing how few people would ever mention their names. And yet to me, the most beautiful sound I could possibly hear were their names. Um, and I think it's just that in our society, we don't really, we find it, it's, it's almost a taboo subject to talk mm. about babies who died. Mm. And yet, um, you know, it's sadly, you know, not that uncommon. And I mean, and certainly with miscarriage, it's incredibly common. You know? Yeah, so I found that actually having um, this fundraiser as a focus gave me permission to talk about my boys. And, um, and I, that's what I love to do. And I love to talk about them. I love to, to share their photos with people and, and talk about, you know, um, them as individuals. And so that first run you raised, the goal was to raise $20,000, which is the cost of a new humidity crib. And, and that, that would come as a surprise to a lot of listeners that when you have a baby in a neonatal intensive care unit, you assume, as I did, as you did, that the equipment is the very best equipment available. And in fact, it's often not. And they do, as you say, rely heavily on external funding because it costs... You know, it costs about three to four thousand dollars a day to care for a premature baby, and so, you know, that that certainly came as a surprise to me that it, it, the external yeah. funding does uh, is the reason that a lot of that equipment exists in those hospitals in those units. Definitely, I was so surprised, and that you know, the hospitals exactly like you say, kind of think that surely, you know, in our country we have the very best equipment to give the very best chance for these, you know, most vulnerable patients. But but when I so, so on that first year we ended up raising eighty thousand dollars and we were able to, uh, the hospital was able to buy four new humidity cribs that they needed and they were really um, new uh, amazing uh, humidity cribs that had not been available prior and with incredible technology um, but that's when when we ran that first race it was um, it was in yeah it was not, six months after Jasper died first race. And I, it was a huge sort of personal achievement for me, actually being able to run 21 kilometers itself. You know, for me, that was a big challenge. And um, I'd, I'd put on the backs of our shirts, when I designed the shirts, I'd included Henry Jasper and Evan's life-sized handprints. And I told everybody on the team to remember when they, that it, it was tough in the race and, and they were finding it tough to remember they've got Henry Jasper and Evan's life-sized handprints on their back and they would be pushing them along. And I absolutely, I was so um, I felt so much that Henry Jasper and Evan were, you know, cheering me on in that race. And when I, I did find it hard, I struggled. But when I was struggling, all I could think of was how hard my little boys had fought to, to stay, and how hard it was for them to breathe with their, you know, even Henry, who didn't have any intervention at all, who had his lungs were not developed at all, managed to breathe for an hour before he died. And so then I, that gave me all the inspiration I needed to just keep running and say, I can just do this. You know, I can run 21 kilometers, not that hard. And then when we finished, I was so on such a high. And I knew then that this, that we had to keep doing this and that four humidity cribs was great, but it wasn't enough. And that the hospital needed more. And 
we needed to provide more. And that, you know, I mean, now today, I, I wouldn't, today we're a registered Australian charity with, and we've raised three and a half million dollars. And we're now supporting, we're now expanding to support more hospitals. But even today, I know I'm, every time I meet a baby or a child who has actually used the equipment that we've provided, it gives me more inspiration to keep working, to grow our charity so that we can reach more hospitals and to provide more equipment. Some of the equipment that we've provided uh, is amazing. There are new ventilators called Narva ventilators that mean but a baby like Jasper with chronic lung disease, they are much more gentle on um, the underdeveloped lungs and are able to support babies like Jasper through their, um, their, their lung disease while, and enable their lungs to then grow and heal. Um, I've met I'm, so many children now. There was one little girl called Charlotte. She was born weighing 498 grams, so significantly smaller than Jasper and Evan. And... She, uh, without the Narva ventilator, she would not um, have, the doctors have said and told her mum, without this Narva ventilator, Charlotte would have no chance of survival. And Charlotte's just celebrated her first birthday. Mm. Um, and uh, for me, you know, just seeing this one little girl and knowing that my boys have played a part in helping this one little girl to make it to her first birthday. And makes it all worthwhile. And that must feel incredible. But I'm assuming it's a little bit bittersweet as well because knowing that if your boys were born today, they would possibly have survived. But certainly. If my, if certainly Jasper, if he had been born today, he well, if he had been born today in a hospital with a Narva ventilator, he wouldn't have possibly survived. He would have survived. Absolutely. Because it was his only problem with his lungs. At 58 days old, he was a big, he was, he weighed, he doubled his birth weight. He weighed 1.6 kilograms, which actually, I mean, I know for, for a normal full-time baby, that's not very much, but he, he was a, he was doing well. It was just his lungs. And so with a Narva ventilator, he would have survived. But actually, um, there's all the if, you know, what if he'd been born today, then he would have survived, but he wasn't born today. And so I, I don't, I'm not bitter about that at all. I'm, I'm really happy to know that um, with, you know, that Jasper and Evan and Henry's legacy is helping other babies today. Um, to me, you know, to me, I can't change what's happened. And the what I, the what if I let go many years ago, you know, I, I had a lot of um, pain around Evan and, and turning off his, his life support. You know, what if we just him alive maybe a miracle maybe he would have, you know he would have been okay but um but that didn't happen and so i i focus on what i can do rather than what i can't do mm. and i can't change the fact that they didn't survive but i can change the fact that other babies can have a better chance and three and a half million dollars is just i mean it's a truly epic achievement because this charity is almost solely driven by you, Sophie. I know you've got a lot of support around you, but um, how do you maintain such incredible energy and positivity when you must have days where it feels really overwhelming and your heart hurts? Certainly it does. And, you know, uh, Henry, Jasper and Evan would be 13. And even though 13 years have passed, there are times when 
the pain is as real as the day that they die. Um, and I, I miss them terribly. I'm, I'm very lucky to have gone on and had two more children, Owen and Harvey, who are eight and 11. And they are beautiful, funny, a sweet and crazy little boys. But um, even they, you know, ask them how many brothers they have. And Henry, Jasper and Evan are always included and always counted mm. and always missed. Mm. Um, um, even my boys who never met them talk about how they missed them. So um, th- there are days when I feel incredibly sad, and but I'm also incredibly proud of them for, you know, without them, running for premature babies wouldn't exist. And mm. yeah, I'm continually inspired by them and therefore motivated to, um, to, to grow this charity. And now um, I, we are a registered Australian charity now. We support you, you, the hospital where your little Ollie was born in Brisbane. And um, we have plans in place to be supporting more hospitals and, and we're growing. And I know that there's so much more work to do and that hospitals are still in need of funding. Um, I also, I'm so grateful that, you know, in the last 13 years, the only reason why we are where we are today is because of the 4,000 plus people who have answered my call to please run an event, run a half marathon, run a fun run, run a marathon, run an ultra marathon. Um, you know, don one of our purple running for premature baby singlets, join us on one of our teams. And it's only because of these incredible people who have done this. And, and all we ask is that each runner tries to raise at least $200. And it's amazing the way it all adds up. Um, you know, it's not true to say that I have raised three and a half million dollars. It's true to say that 4,000 people have raised three and a half million dollars. And that this money, it's so tangible to see, uh, you know, where this money goes. You can you walk into the Royal Hospital of Women and, and you see this unit. I love going back in there and seeing this unit, which is absolutely transformed from what it was 13 years ago. And so many of the pieces of equipment in that unit, when you look around, are funded by running for premature babies. The other day I was in the unit and because I was taking um, our ambassador for a tour of the unit, our, our, our New South Wales ambassador, Wendy Moore, for our um, a tour of the unit. And when I was in there, we saw machines that we donated actually saving lives. There was a um, baby in distress, and one of the um, machines that we provided was an X-ray machine. That means that for the first time, the doctors and the nurses, if there's a, um, an issue and they need to, 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 to X-ray a baby, in the up to now, what happens is you, you X-ray the baby. That then gets sent to the x-ray department. And it takes about 10 to 15 minutes for the results to come back to the neonatal intensive care unit. But with this machine that we funded, the result of the x-ray is seen instantly at the baby's bedside. And when I was in the unit, one of the neonatologists was taking us for a tour. And suddenly there was a crisis. And the doctor, the neonatologist said, sorry, I've just got to go. And he ran across to a baby's bedside. The, the x-ray machine was wheeled over. Um, the alarms were beeping on this very, very small baby. I just stood by, stood aside. And five minutes later, the doctor returns to me and said, you have just witnessed that machine saving a baby's life. The baby's, uh, one of the tubes was dislodged in, in the wrong place. And if that baby had had to wait 10 minutes for the results of the x-ray, the result could have been, you know, 
devastating. Whereas what actually happened was they could see that the tube was in the wrong place because the X-ray was immediately showing the result. They could reposition the tube, re-X-ray, and say, the baby's fine. The crisis is over. Um, and so it's really um, incredible to be able to see that this, these machines you know, are being used. And the, ho the, the hospital is at capacity. I spoke to one of the doctors just um, on Friday evening, actually, and he told me that the, um, the intensive care, neonatal intensive care unit, level three, is currently full with 16 babies. Um, and we've just funded the equipment for uh, them to expand their unit by four more beds. So they'll now be able to care for 20 babies at a time. And um, yeah, it's just really wonderful to know that, that our money is making a real difference. Mm. We're also funding research to advance the care of premature babies and um, for the future, which again is a very um, important part of uh, neonatology. That's amazing, Sophie. And you, what, what's next for the foundation when you think about the future of running for premature babies? What do you think about? When I think about the future of running for premature babies, I think about the fact that in Australia, each year, 26,000 babies are born prematurely all around our country. And my vision is that we can help these brilliant neonatologists and neonatal staff. And uh, uh, honestly, these people are, um, are the true heroes. Um, but that we can support them by providing life-saving equipment to hospitals all over our country so that they can you know, do their very best work to help save these lives. And ensure more families get to take their babies home. Currently, I'm really excited to have launched in Queensland. And we have Shah Cassie, who's our volunteer Queensland coordinator. And, and it's because of these amazing volunteers like yourself, like Shah, who's working hard on the ground in Brisbane to um, form, uh, create running communities and enter teams into the Gold Coast Marathon Festival and the Brisbane Marathon Festival. Um, our team events are, you know, it's, there's so much, we're about so much more than just fundraising in that it's the, it's the communities that we can form as well. So, and I'm really looking forward to doing that in Queensland. In Sydney, our half marathon, Sydney Morning Herald half marathon, we enter by far the biggest team into this event each year. I had 500 runners on my team this year in May, and I'm hoping next year to have even more. Um, and, and amongst these people, we have runners of all running abilities from you know elite runners people who've never run before and we also provide free training sessions and so these training sessions enable people to come together and and run together and make friends people you know lifelong friendships have been forged through my team which i just love to see and also it's the people who come as many many people who come to the team because they actually have a direct connection to prematurity we have so many people now who run with us because their own babies have actually used the very equipment that we've provided. And we also have many people who join us because they want to run in memory of their own baby who's been lost to prematurity or stillbirth or, um, or SIDS or, 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 or some other um, tragedy. These people have told me how joining Running for Premature Babies and, you know, if they're running for their own child or baby who passed away, I uh, arrange for uh, their baby or child's name to be printed on the back of their shirt. And people who are running in memory of a baby who's died have told me how running in their baby's name to give other babies a better chance has helped them heal and also has enabled them to be able to talk about their lost baby and by their name. And it's helped the friends and family around them as well because People have come together and formed teams within my team 
And so we have many teams within the team uh, which are running in the name of someone else's baby. So mm. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really proud that I've been able to also support other grieving parents and become a community who can help each other and support each other. And I'm assuming that's really helped you in your grief as well, Sophie, because not only did you have to go through the heartbreak of losing three boys, you also then lost Ash, your husband, to a brain tumour. Um, yes. That, so, that would have been the end of most people. Uh, you know, if somebody had told when I read that story in the triplet connection about the woman who lost her three babies, my thought was I would just crumple into a heap and die if that was me. But I didn't. And, you know, it's not because I'm any, you know, extraordinary person. It is actually the strength, the power of the human spirit, the strength of the human spirit, I think, is um, is is greater than we realize. And um, Ash was uh, by my side every step of the running for premature baby's journey. He was by my side, you know, from when my waters broke with Henry and he never left my side. He helped me with starting running for premature babies. It was his very idea in the first place. And sadly, two years after our boys died, Ash, uh, just after running actually the Sydney Morning Herald Half Marathon on our team, was uh, diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And so, yes, we we then um, had to face his illness and, uh, and sadly, seven years after his diagnosis, his death, aged only 43. Um, but I, I couldn't give up because, well, firstly, we have two living sons, Owen and Harvey, who need a, need a mum. And also I knew that for Ash, we continued, he continued to be very heavily involved in running for premature babies, even when he was very sick. Only about two weeks before he died, we had a committee meeting around his bedside so that he could be involved in our plans for running for premature babies in the following year. And, and our goals for running for premature babies in 2016, that was our 10th year. And, our, and so we'd made a goal that we were going to double the size of our running team to 500 runners. We'd always been 250 up to then. And then we'd also made a, a plan that we would go to New York and we would run a marathon, well, my first full marathon. And so that was a plan I'd made with Ash. And after he died, once again, I knew, well, I knew how much running for, throwing myself into running for premature babies had actually helped me through the t very, very hard months after losing our babies. And once again, I threw myself back into the charity after Ash died. And I wanted to achieve those goals for Ash. And, um, and I did. We had 500 people on the start line three months after he died. And then I began training for my first full marathon. And we took a team of 15 people across to New York six months after he died. And, um, and that was, um, I think that really, you know, uh, training for New York Marathon and having that focus actually um, saved me, helped me to survive those months. Even looking back, I can honestly say that running for premature babies uh, it's estimated, doctors have told me that it's estimated that running for some of your babies has so far um, benefited, helped to save the lives of, directly of 5,500 babies. But to me, I know that running for premature babies has also helped to save me. I don't know how I would have survived without it because it has given me the opportunity to do something positive and also to bring my babies with me. I feel like Henry, Jasper and Evan a part of my presence and part of my everyday through running for premature babies. And that, that helps me um, 
that helps me that, that they're not just something that happened to me a long time ago that I've buried into my past. They've, they've come with us and, um, and are continuing to, um, to, to make a positive difference. Mm, just extraordinary it's such I think you are without doubt the most inspiring example of the strength as you say of the human spirit and what's possible when you channel intense grief into something really positive Sophie thank you so much for your time today and if people do want to get involved no doubt they're inspired to be uh, more involved after listening to this uh, in running for premature babies how do they join well we you know as I say we wouldn't be who we are without people and so I'm always looking, always looking for more people to join us. It's really easy to join us. You can join us from anywhere around the country. Um, if you are in Sydney or Brisbane, the Gold Coast or the Sunshine Coast, then we do have team events in the Sydney Half Marathon, Sydney City to Surf, and as, as I said, the Gold Coast Marathon Festival or the Brisbane Marathon Festival, where we will train you and we will, um, you know, you'll be part of a, of a team. Or if you want to take on, anyone wants to take on a running challenge of their own, it really doesn't matter how the, of the distance. You know, you might want to take on an ultramarathon, but you might just want to take on a four-kilometer fun run, whatever anyone wants to do. You can take on an event, um, get in touch with me through my website, and I can, um, through our website, you can set up a fundraising page. We ask that you could try to raise us $200, and then I will uh, give you a running singlet and a running cap which does have Henry Jasper and Evans' hands on. So it's a super shirt that will help, very push you, special. help push you around. <laughs> um, and, and, yeah, we'd be so grateful. And all the money goes to life-saving equipment and research. Currently at the Royal Hospital of Women and the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital neonatal unit and also to Neo Rescue, the retrieval service, which helps to uh, rescue babies from rural uh, Queensland and northern New South Wales and transport those babies safely to uh, a neonatal intensive care unit. So the, the money we raise, you know, goes directly to what we say it's going to raise. We're a very small charity with very low overheads. So, um, you know, we, we pride ourselves on our money getting to, to help directly to babies literally, and save babies yeah lives. literally saving lives yeah. and um, also if anybody would like to make a donation um through our website running for premature um you can make a one-off donation or even become a regular giver but uh, we're so grateful i'm so grateful to the you know, thousands of donations that have been made over the years and it's incredible the way every dollar adds up no donation is too small and every donation makes a difference Sophie, thank you so much for your time today. We'll put the link to that in the show notes. Um, and, yeah, um, we just am so grateful for sharing your Amanda, story today. And I am so grateful to you for your incredible support as our Queensland ambassador. It's such an honour to have you on board and, um, you know, your own personal story. It, it, it makes it even more powerful. And um, thank you so much for interviewing me on your podcast. Thank you. The honour is all mine, Sophie. Um, and to learn more about Running for Premature Babies, as I said, we'll put the link into the show notes. And um, Sophie, we wish you all the best with the foundation. Thank you. Well, I did tell you that that was an intense interview, but I also found it incredibly inspiring. I'm so glad I got to introduce you to Sophie because as you can probably tell, despite everything, she's one of the most positive people you'll ever meet. There are, of course, a load of takeaways from this chat today, but here are my top three. Number one, 
humans can cope with more than we give ourselves credit for. Most people would agree that the thought of losing one child, let alone three, then your spouse, is just too much to even contemplate, let alone survive. But we do survive, and even when we're heartbroken, we're never really broken. Number two, when you're at rock bottom, the best way to climb out is to find a way to help others. Sophie admits that running and fundraising gave her a purpose and a reason to get up each morning, and she was able to channel grief that frankly most people won't ever experience in a lifetime into something that is now impacting thousands of lives every year. What an epic legacy. When we're driven by a purpose that's bigger than our own story, we're able to find resilience that can get us through the darkest of times. And finally, connect, unite and collaborate. Sophie's success with running for premature babies is something that she's achieved by being incredibly passionate, but she's also a relentless connector and networker. She knocks on doors, she gets corporate funding, and she inspires others to want to join her cause. When you can connect people to each other, you strengthen the connection that they have with your brand. Well, that brings season one of the epic podcast to a close. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'd love to hear your feedback and thoughts on who you'd like to hear on future episodes. Drop me a line on the contact form at epicpodcast.com.au. 